Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. Hey, it's Wyatt. Yes, asking for your help. If you like the show and enjoy the content, please hit the five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. Please consider writing a quick review on the Talent Tank Facebook page, on YouTube, and absolutely on Apple Podcasts. And consider joining the discussions in the Talent Tank Insiders group on Facebook. All right, let's get to it. All right, welcome back to the Talent Tank. This is Wyatt, your host. Today, as you clicked on the episode, you saw that we have Wayne Israelson in the hot seat with us. He's taking a dive into the tank with us. Shockingly enough, he's the wizard of the whoops, the doctor of the dampening, the one who will get you righteous with the rebound. Wayne, welcome. Thanks a lot, Wyatt. Good to be here. I'm so excited to have you on. I've known you for over a decade. Uh, you've let me stay at your house before when I've been in Menifee, California, where you hail from today, the home of the Israelson family, home of Alltech Motorsports. So, yeah, I remember uh, you got really tired of sleeping on the floor of that RV for a couple of weeks there. Yeah, that might that might have happened. But, man, it was such a it's such a good time. Uh, anyone that was listening to just a couple episodes ago caught, you know, Adam Woodley and Adam Woodley and I talking about what happened in 2009 with Vegas Torino, best in the desert, Vegas Torino, the, I guess the registration of the 4,400 class and the first best, really the desert race that put the 4,400 number placards on cars. And we discussed Vegas Torino. And that was the first time I met you was I flew out to Menifee. Jeff Knoll picked me up and his chase truck from the airport there in Ontario, little Southwest airlines and delivered me to Barstow, wasn't it? No. Didn't you come straight to Barstow? No, no. He delivered. Did you come here? All right. He, awesome. What, Jeff and I came straight to your house from the airport to Casa Israelson, the little ranchette there with the big old shop behind it with, that has massive amounts of history there. You had, at the time, you had yourself racing out of there. Dave Schneider was prepping a car there. Dave Cole had a pro mod that was there. Ben Napier parked his race cars and race trailers there. I believe that night, first night I was there, I believe the Hartman showed up, you know, and that's uh, Dust Junkie Racing. Yeah. You had Chris Cabrera, uh, Chupa Cabrera, Mobile One Sin. Yep. He showed up. He did uh, some some radio work. And then you'll have to remind me of this guy's name. I have, he had a class one that he tended to race snore with. He had a shop over in one of the orchards. I believe it was an orange class one. So Jim Knox. That's who it was. So and, Jim Knox. Yeah, Jim Knox. He was a he was a rock crawler, but his that car was built by Sean Dunn. That's what it was. Sean Dunn yeah, built the car. Yeah. And Jim Knox, Jim Knox stopped by your shop that night and we ended up you know, working out a deal to go borrow fuel jugs from him the next day to get right. Vegas Torino kind of going for us. And then Shannon Welch was on a couple episodes before that and she talked about her efforts for that year's Vegas Torino. But it's kind of funny how all of those stories, you know, uh, at least things that happened in my life or my trajectory in off-road and off-road racing and forays and relationships, a lot of them kind of center around that 0809 time period. And that's exactly when we met. That was a race to remember. That was one of those races where I was so happy it was done. It was a hard one. We, I think we did 13 fuel pumps during that race. But uh, uh, what was great is the build up to it and all the prep and stuff, we had, the preparation we did. I can remember, I thought you had come straight out to Barstow, but I guess you came here first because we went to test that uh, that car that we raced the next day. And I, 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 I thought it was a little bit funny, your reaction when I gave you a ride. You actually felt what shocks were supposed to look like or feel like instead of what you were used to. 
Oh, yeah. We were used to, well, I mean, at the time my car was on ORIs. Those were definitely not made for the desert yeah, yeah. at all. <laughs> No, that was good stuff. And you had a story you said you were going to, because when we had this discussion about, we, <laughs> I know had, this one. Yeah. Yeah, we had this discussion about doing this and uh, you said, you know what? I just listened to, uh, to Adam Woodley and, and Woodley telling the story about why you grabbing the radiator cap to fill it, you know, and, and you just grabbed it and, and threw it open because you knew we needed water and to turn the car out. But you had a perspective of inside the car. So yeah, Jeff and I leave the line. It's 117 degrees. You know, we I'd raced a lot before that, and Jeff Jeff hadn't had done some desert racing, but we couldn't believe the dust. It was so dusty that at one point we we were watching something and we thought birds were flying off the ground in front of us, and then the dust cleared just enough to to see that there was a 12 car that was shredding a tire and it was throwing black rubber at us that we thought were birds because we couldn't see the car. It was so dusty. And so that was pretty cool, but got around him and kept going. And then the car overheated. The fans had, I think the uh, wiring had melted to the fans. So in trying to fix that, I'd cut my finger really bad. And we had no water, had basically pumped it all out. So we put every bit of water that we had to drink, and it was still 120. And then peed all we could in the radiator and got going again. And then we called in and we get going. And I can remember just as you opened that cap, I opened my helmet. So it went a full face full of Jeff and my piss and and, uh, and water and whatever, Coke, whatever else we had out there. I still have that helmet, and if I were to warm it up, I can still get that nostalgic stink from that day. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, that was uh, that was terrible. I mean, we learned so much, and it's funny when I look when I remember back to that race, how kind of bad so many things were, but I've completely forget about the bad parts. It's all about how much, just how much fun we had. Oh man, I'm exact exactly the same way. I I swore I'd never race another desert race as I drove home in my motorhome that that morning, and then it started to rain, and I calmed down, and it wasn't a year later I'm back in a race car out in the desert. So it's one of those things where the the hard ones. It's a little bit like working on a, a race car for me. The hard ones are the ones you learn from and, rem and remember, and that one taught us all a lot. Oh, it absolutely did. Well, we've got you in the tank today, and we're going to talk about you know who Wayne Israelson is, where Wayne's from, where he grew up, his family. He's got a wonderful family. And then his business, Alltech Motorsports, and what he does for the shock world and making your ride roll smooth across the biggest, nastiest whoops that you can find anywhere, which will come into play here in February for a whole bunch of folks. <laughs> Lots of fun. Lots of fun. Well, Wayne, you're a, you're actually a Utah guy, born, raised before you moved to California and became a, a Menifee-ite. Yeah, transplant. A, a good transplant. So you grew up in the northeast part of the state, uh, like up around Logan, but then you ended up in Hiram as a, as a kid. So yeah, I was born, uh, we lived in Logan until I was about six, and then we bought a house on a couple acres in Hiram when I when I was six. I can remember house was just basically two log cabins that were put together and had a bunch of yard for me to light fires and do all sorts of bad stuff in the backyard. But uh, we had snowmobiles we would ride in the backyard, and then we weren't too far from the family farm, the dairy, where I would milk cows and haul hay and do all that stuff that taught me work ethic, honestly. You know, went to school and lived in that house from age six till when I was 18. And I loaded everything I had in a 69 Mustang and moved to California to go to school. So really love being from Utah. Look, I go there and visit, but the pace is so slow now. I don't think I could I could move back. Well, I think in some of that prepped you for the life you have there in Menifee with uh, your mini farm you have. You When I was there, you had chickens and goats and I mean, just every animal under the sun running around out there. Well, not every, but I like to have more. I just don't have the room or the time for them. But yeah, we enjoy the chickens. We uh, 
we enjoy, enjoy having the two two goats, and then occasionally we'll get a, a turkey or another animal that we can raise. And then uh, we'll, we'll, we aren't your normal pet owners. We actually have a farm. We raise them to eat them. And whether that's politically correct or not, I don't know, but that's that's what we do, and we enjoy it. Best best turkey you'll ever have at Thanksgiving is when you're raised. All right, kind of your work ethic as growing up. I know you had a you had a, a paper route and ran a paper route and saved up some money for your first car, and that's kind of where this this whole thing takes the motorsports turn. Yeah, so I worked did a lot of jobs, had a paper route really early in life and saved money. And during the summer, we used to haul hay uh, for the for the farmers or, you know, milk or do any of the farm chores you could to get a little bit extra money. So I was working. I mean, I was working from the time I remember anytime there was spare time when I wasn't fishing or hunting, I was working and uh, ran across a, a, a car. I didn't have any any idea what it was. I just loved it and uh, drove by it on the way to the farm several times, probably for two years until I finally got the courage to go talk to the farmer. It turned out to be a 1957-210. The only thing I knew about it at the time was it had 55, uh, 55 chrome on it, but it was 57 with the 57 fins. And it, and it turned out to be a 210 Lake Racer. Had a 283, but it had been in a fire. And so it was actually a piece of junk. I, I never did anything with it at 12, but I hauled it home with the tractor and took it apart pretty well. I never did get it back together, but uh, that was my start into into uh, motorsports. And from there, it was all about street racing. That one led into a 64 Impala. That's how when I learned to work on a power glide. And then I think there was a 70 Chevelle, lots of Mustangs. Started with 69. That was my favorite. Had lots of Mustangs. 75 Chevy Monza. That one was fun. I put a four volt main out of a truck in it with a big cam. And so basically think of a uh, well, not a Chevette, but a Chevy Vega with a V8 in it. That thing would, would move. But the Mustangs were kind of what I what I always loved. And then you get out of high school. You've got your Mustang. You load all the way up, and you head to California to go to school. And that didn't work out the way you had planned. Yeah, yeah. So a friend of mine, I was always we always had like boats, and we're, we're water skiing when when the ice wasn't on the pond. So a friend of mine's dad offered us an, a, a deal that he'd help us open a boat shop, but we needed to get schooling. But we had no experience and. We bugged. I was pretty persistent. I bugged Mercury till they just basically just out of to get me to stop calling and writing them. They said, if you can go to this guy in Cerritos College, California, get him go through his course. And if he gives you recommendation, we'll put you in the Mercury Marine training program with no experience. And that was on a Wednesday. And we left Thursday because school started Monday. And so uh, I, I went to my dad and I said, I need $874 and still don't know whether to what to think of this, but it took him about three seconds to write that check and hand it to me. So he was either happy I finally decided someplace to go or happy to get rid of me. I don't know. Uh, I think uh, I think it was probably the, the former, not the latter. But then how did that work out at Cerritos? So uh, we went we went there and rented an apartment and and uh, started going, and the guy I went down with, whose father was going to do the the thing with us, he got homesick and just left. He went back home. I, you know, being a you know farmer with with morals, I had signed a year lease, so I decided I was going to stay and honor my lease of an apartment. And so I stayed and struggled and worked at Osco Drug and Pat's Cyclery in in Norwalk, and eventually met a, a friend also from from a town near me who was driving on the street, and I flagged him down, and I think I called his dad, and I found out he was living in. In, uh, in Cerritos, and he was working for a painting contractor. And then I called him, and we hooked up, and he told me to get me a job working six bucks an hour, which was about two bucks more than I was making at Osco Drug. So I went to work being a painting a painter, and uh, from there I grew into be partners in that business, and went 25 years in that business. We'll certainly talk about that, but you don't do painting anymore, though, right? 
No, I, I at 25 years to the day, uh, we, we split and I went out to do my own thing. Gotcha. We're going to get into that because that was the, the Wayne that I knew was, uh, was a painter. I think you have a couple of good stories that I want to touch on. But in this time frame, you're cruising around town. You've got your Mustang. You're working as a painter. You meet your wife, Kathleen. So, yeah, Kathleen, she uh, she's actually the general foreman of Bruin Paintings. Uh, he, his name was Gene Williams, and uh, Kathleen was his daughter. So Gene liked me because I had a head on my shoulders, I think, and I could actually work as hard as most or harder than most. And, you know, painting was easy compared to bucking bales all day long. He kept having me in for coffee, and I just wanted to go home. And she didn't like me very much, and and I didn't think much of her until because I was driving there, and it's either an old Datsun pickup I don't remember or a 1975 Ford Pinto. Uh, we named that thing Rex. It was a pile of crap, but she had a lot of fun in it. And uh, imagine a rental car you own. That's what Rex was. <laughs> you're working for a painting company. You're making six bucks an hour. You've still got your Mustang and you end up meeting your wife who you guys have been together now married for, you know, 31 years, 30 yeah. married yeah. for 31 years. So that puts you guys, Oh, back in the mid eighties. Yeah. 89. We got married. So, so it's 30 years, I guess. And she is the daughter of the. So the, the general foreman for the painting company I was working for, she uh, he he liked me and he invited me into. I guess he was actually trying to introduce us, but we didn't like each other for a while until I did show up to go line dancing or country dancing, whatever it was that they were doing. I, they invited me one. I want to say it was Christmas Eve, and they invited me to go uh, go country dancing with them. And I came from a small town; I knew how to do that, so I went just to do something rather than be homesick on Christmas Eve. And and when I did, I drove up in this in this shiny midnight blue Mustang with the 390 and straight pipes. And then she started to pay attention to me. And uh, after that, we, we started going out. And I think I took her to her high school prom that year. And uh, it was shortly thereafter we got married. Probably too young, but it sure was sure has been a good run. So I guess it wasn't too run, too young. I know my father-in-law will tell a story about my wife. Like she'd had you know, various boyfriends that she had brought home over time. But when she brought me home, I drove this, you know, this Duramax crew cab and we show up at his house. And afterwards he's like, yep, that's it. That that's going to be the guy she's going to marry. He, sh he showed up in a truck. That's totally out, <laughs> outside the norm for her. So I was the one that he was finally like worried about, but, um, <laughs> I, but it's funny how vehicles can do that. You get that. Yes. I'm interested in that person, that initial, there's something, something initial. Sometimes it's just in a bar. You see them across the bar, they catch your eye, but a lot of the time it's in, it tends to be a vehicle. It's kind of funny like that. I think if you share interests, it might be that we shared interests because she was also driving a Mustang at the time. Oh, there you go. See? And that's exactly what happened. And here you are 31 years later. You guys have been together about 32, 33, and you've got a handful of uh, handful of kids that are grown. Are you guys, are you guys empty nesters now? Uh, Zach still lives here. My youngest still lives uh, at home because he's going to going to uh, engineering school. He's on his last, I think, last year of engineering school. And he's he's a heck of an engineer. That's I'm really proud of him. He works for me and he does all our CAD drawing and, and, and most of our machining. But then you've got you've got a couple daughters. I think one's a chef. So yeah, I started the, at the top. So Nicole's my oldest. She, she, uh, we had her just shortly after we were married, about a year after we were married. And, uh, I don't know how she survived with two of us being 19 and 20, but she's a really sharp, sharp kid. She's 29 now, I think, and a school teacher at one of the local school districts and has two kids of her own. And, uh, all you dads, it's so much easier to be a grandpa than a dad. So look forward to that. 
Okay. And then she is married to a really good guy, Vinny. He has really bad taste in cars like me. He likes internationals, which is, is awful and terrible and wonderful all at the same time. So I got a I got a yard full of his stuff as well as a yard full of my stuff now. But that's good. That's something we share. And uh, and and then they have two kids, Skylar. She's two. She pretty much runs the whole family right now. And then Vince, Vinny, Mini Vinny, I call him. He's uh, he's just happiest kid. Just look, looks just like Vinny and uh, and is just all he wants to do every day is smile. Just look at him. He just wants to smile at you. And then I have a, a daughter, Taylor. She's 27. She's a chef at one of the local wineries, and uh, and she does really crazy stuff. She's the one that helps me helps me harvest and clean and prepare and 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 uh, cook all the critters that we have around the shop. But we try to visit her restaurant every couple of weeks. And for Father's Day, she made me a 54 ounce tomahawk ribeye. That was that was three days of eating. Oh wow! <laughs> it was good. Uh, so, like like the old 96er. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, and then Zach, he still lives at home. He's 24. Yeah, he's 24, and he'll graduate uh, with his engineering degree soon. And yeah, I'm really proud of him. There's there's not many rooms he's in. He's not the smartest one. And so that makes you your grandfather of two. Yes. And then a father of three. But yes. funny enough, there is a lot of people in the offer community that refer to you as dad. Yeah. And I'm one of those people. I refer to yeah. you as dad. And when I have conversations with other, you know, with my other siblings about dad, it's funny, but I have no, I really don't have any idea how you got the nickname dad. But when we were hanging out, it was always, re you were referred to as dad. So I've kind of always wondered. That's a funny story. So I, I that, that moniker kind of stuck with me from high school. I was a high school wrestler and we used to go on wrestling tournaments and stay in a hotel. And I always used to get pissed and not let the other guys that were in the hotel room like you know pull the curtains off the wall and throw stuff and they started calling me dad and that kind of st stuck and then i think chris cabrera chupa was calling me dad and uh dave snyder was down prepping that car i think to do vegas torino no it wasn't it was for the royal purple 500 in june before we did vegas torino we were prepping for it and we were all prepping that car and they and they started calling me dad because i was kind of directing traffic i guess we go through the this Royal Purple 500 and we, we finish and there was one other Ultra 4 car there. Uh, Jim Knox and Howard Kinnick and, and Earl Frazier were in another Ultra 4 car there and we won. Well, we won our class anyway, but you never tell anybody how many people in the class, I guess. No, yeah, right? Yeah, so uh, so after we all went to this Chinese restaurant in Lucerne, California, don't ask me why, but we did. And Dave, everybody kept calling me dad, you know, just giving me crap. And the, the Chinese waitress lady, she goes, are you the father? And it was funny. And ever since then, I've been dad. That, that is funny. Well, I still refer to you as that, certainly in text or when anyone says, you know, actually, you had several people reach out to me to make sure that I was doing an interview with dad for the talent tank. And I said, yeah, I'd... I wear it proudly. I actually put it on my shirts. That's uh, outstanding. How many years did you paint before you went out on your own and be became somewhat Wayne the Entrepreneur? So, I mean, painting went 25 years uh, from uh, October 26th. I don't 25 years, October 26, 19 or 1980, 1988 to to uh, 2012. That doesn't make that's not enough time. I started in 1987. It's 87 to 2012 uh, and October 26 to October 26. Don't ask me why I remember that. I just remember that. 
during that whole time, uh, when I was painting, I, I did I did well. You know, we 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 worked hard, but we we had a really good painting business. We were the biggest non-union shop in the, in Southern California, so we were we did really well, and it allowed me to be able to have some disposable income to go do crazy stuff like rock crawl and build cars and and jeep and drag race and motorcycle race and all the stuff that I did to learn, and and it also introduced me to a lot of really good people. Uh, you know, Dave Clark and and some of those guys that and Nye Frank and some of those guys at New Shocks and I got a pretty pretty good introduction to what suspension will do for you and when I was poor boy racer on a motorcycle I found that I couldn't do much with the motor I didn't have the equipment but I could do a lot with the shocks and if I was faster than them through the rough didn't matter how much horsepower they had I could still beat them and that's kind of where my shock work came from in all that racing I found a lot of issues that were easy to fix for me anyway it just didn't it just made sense to you know when when we were spinning the bolts out of nine inch boards just to put a, a bridge lock like they have on the clutch of a quad in there they work and that's what we did and how you become the master of the motion ratio yeah, well, that's how the shocks came, and and you know, you, I had a good early teacher, and he he taught me the the simple math. And a lot of people think it's complicated, but it's very simple math to figure to figure motion ratio and to figure spring load and all that stuff. There's there's more complicated math to do, like frequency and. I don't do the frequency math just because it takes too long, but you can do the same exact, get the same exact re result by not actually figuring the frequency, but figuring the preload. So that's kind of how that came. So the whole time I was doing, you know, painting, it allowed me to race and work on my own stuff and figure stuff out. And I've been doing shock since the late 80s. I haven't been good at it. I've been good at it for about 15 years. So it takes a long time to figure out. And there's a lot of people that are, have been doing shocks and, and know you know, and, and do and do good good stuff for what they know. But when they get in the weeds, that's when you know when a shot guy's good or not. Right. To jump back, I don't want to, I guess, close the close the loop just yet on uh, your entrepreneurial skills. But sure. When we were talking about you painting, you did a lot of commercial work. I remember riding with you. I think we were rolling through like Norco, and you're pointing out strip centers. Every building. Yeah, strip centers. That's right. Every building. Like we did that. We did that last year. This one, you know, you see these buildings are like brand new tilt walls, and you're like, yeah, those are my crews over there, right there. And this, yeah. It was it was pretty cool from my perspective, you know, being able to roll around with you, and you kind of had a very good feel for your area and everything going on around you. But one thing that uh, that happened around that time frame, you had just landed a job to paint the Rose Bowl, and being a Kansas guy, Texas guy, I didn't know much about Southern California, but I definitely know college football and the Bowl Series and the Rose Bowl. Everyone, you know, I mean, they they broadcast the Rose Bowl parade, you know, nationwide. So when you told me you're painting the Rose Bowl, I mean, it just floored me. Yeah, that was, I mean, that's just one of those things where it was nothing special from my end until you got there. So from my end, I went to the job site. They do it, we did it differently toward the time I was leaving. There was a lot of electronic stuff. But when, when I actually landed that one, it was probably one of the last paper jobs I actually landed where I went to the, went to the, the building or the, the contractor and started looking at plans and I told him this is too complicated. I need these plans. I need to spend two days looking at this because it was the scoreboard that you see every day. That was the most difficult part. And then if you've ever been to the Rose Bowl, it, if you get into the guts of the Rose Bowl, you swear the thing's going to fall down around you. It just It's just old looking. So they want to keep that and they don't want you to paint the whole thing. So the things they want you to paint were, were difficult. So when I went to, to bid the job, I didn't think much of it. And then it took me a long time to bid it. And then when I landed it and actually went on the job walk, then the kind of the gravity of the whole thing hit me is the entire world sees this thing about two dozen times a, a year. 
we got to be right. And we started three or four weeks late and we're racing. Well, I think we were actually racing the college season to get it done. So it was it was an exciting job when I did it for sure. I think it's awesome. But so, okay, we can jump into motorsports. We'll get there. We'll uh, we'll, we'll absolutely get into uh, getting get back into this. Sorry, I had to close right. it out for for me. I always find it very interesting where guys came from and what what they did. Uh, as I've said numerous times, uh, just put food on the table. And your painting gig and your painting company always just kind of it, it interested me. Managing the amount of resources you needed to manage to pull off something like painting the Rose Bowl is of a very large magnitude, and it's very pretty awesome anyway yeah i think i had 175 guys under my control at one point that's uh not not an insignificant number man wayne's job creation a lot, a lot of it was a lot of babysitting i just used to tell people i'm just an adult babysitter no that's a, <laughs> that's what it is that's project manager's job foreman absolutely yeah for sure keep everybody working yeah. Well, we touched on a little bit of uh, your shock knowledge and where you've gone with shocks and effectively what ended up being the foundation for what is Alltech today. And then we talked about you drag racing and into racing and, uh, and your progression kind of in that from car to car to car to end up at the Monza when you you know had a Mustang, when you bought this 57 Chevy. You ended up in Southern California. You ended up racing motorcycles. I think you did some mountain bike stuff in there as well, as you mentioned. But then then you discovered the desert. So yeah, the the mountain bike was was early. I, I I mean, mountain biking was coming on big, and I lived in La Habra, which is right near Chino, and I could actually I think every Wednesday night I could go to Your Belinda Cycles and meet up with Gary Fisher and actually ride with him and and Tinker Yaris and some of those cool guys that are legends now. Obviously, I rode with them until we hit the trails, and then I caught up later because I never had time to train like they did. But we had a lot of fun. My first foray into suspension was actually I took an old rigid and cut it apart and put pivots on it and tried to make a, a shock work on it. And I made it work, but it was one of those learning things where you know, never had the time to delve in. But after that, um, my brother-in-law takes me to the desert and gives me a borrowed YZ250, the old monoshock one, yellow, I think it was. I nearly killed myself. I turn around, my wife is sitting on the back of our Jeep just laughing her head off. And so I'm like, well, before I go back and face that, I think I'll learn how to ride this thing. So I just took off into the desert trying to figure out how not to die on a motorcycle until I kind of, I guess I kind of figured it out enough that I could ride it. And that, by the time I got back and they were, she was still laughing at the Flying W, uh, by the time I got back, I has really hooked on motorcycles, and so I raced motorcycles and did did a bunch of District 37 and even a little bit of track track racing. But I just never had the. I always had to get up and go to work in the morning. I never had that uh, no fear thing that a lot of motorcyclers, motorcyclists, that, that are track racers have to have a, a lot of courage. And I just always had to get up in the morning. Did you have a mullet at that point in life? So I had a mullet through high school. It was a good mullet too. It was like full on winger mullet, but um. Oh, I've seen pictures. That it's no, it's, you, you it's haven't quite seen amazing. No. When my wife and I were dating, one Christmas I cut it off the day before Christmas, and I showed up, and she looked at me and said, "Grow your hair back. You look 12. <laughs> and that and that mullet that you see that I posted recently is actually the the what has had gone from that. It was mullet generation number two, but we're talking ponytail or braid or or actually I could reach and grab my hair without putting my head back. It was I know it was feathered. It was it was Joe Dirt from Utah. Amazing, gloriously amazing. It was beautiful. I got to tell you. And all your friends that know you are literally thinking about you right now, listening to this, trying to visualize you with a mullet, and they cannot do it. It's I something. I've got pictures. <laughs> I've got pictures somewhere. I just don't want to scare everybody. 
and if you say the picture that I saw was not the the magnitude 10 mullet, then I don't know what, I don't know how you make that one better. Because the one I saw, I was like, oh my gosh, look at that Mississippi mud flap. That thing is gorgeous. I'll just tell you, you add about four years of growth to the back and leave the front exactly the same. There you go. Way past Billy Ray Cyrus. He had nothing on you. Yeah, his was good. My hair wasn't that full. My hair is more stringy than his, but his was good. But it was longer than his for sure. Right. (laughs) No, I love it. Now, so you were uh, introduced to the desert, introduced to dirt biking. You get totally hooked on it. You start figuring out how to, well, you start racing. You start figuring out how to make yourself faster. And that kind of opened up the doors for so many things to where you're at today. So, yeah, that motorcycle is what taught me that, you know, 125 can beat a 250 if you can hold it pinned through the corner and all the way across those bumps while while the guy with, you know, too much power is trying to try not to die. You're, you're you know, walking away from him. Obviously, you know, the faster guys can handle that. But I just found that I was faster than a lot of people if I could make my bike work. And so I just I found that I could take a suspension didn't scare me. I had some good teachers and I took stuff apart and put it back together and screwed it up enough times until I knew what not to do on motorcycles. And then motorcycle injuries started to happen too frequently and uh we changed to a sand rail and sand rail came with crappy shock so i started to look for stuff and that i could rebuild and put on there and that led to a 16 car and from there it just led to uh, well there's just a, a minute i can't even remember all the cars that i've been involved evolved with built and, and raced in the desert before i started rock crawling and what year did you start rock crawling because that opens up the modern day era of where we're at so the rock crawling story is kind of funny. Business was going really well at, at painting shop. We were we were going, we were making good money, and we were really busy. The desert racing is all you guys that are doing Ultra 4 and desert racing and prepping cars for most of your year to race five times. Just takes so much time, and I didn't have any. I was, you know, with 150 to 100 guys under my control at any one time. I was, you know, working an 18-hour day was a pretty simple day for me. So had to get something that was, was that we could relax, and family time is really important for us. So I tried really hard to keep concentrated on the family, and we bought this motorhome, the one you slept in, and that was 2003. And then I was looking for something to tow behind it, and found a samurai paid too much for a samurai down in san marcos or oceanside and i brought that home and i made a tow bar for it and we decided let's go somewhere so we went out to calico ghost town and me and the kids just jokingly told kathleen we're gonna go exploring because i think she had some homework to do she was in school at the time and and we said we're gonna go uh exploring if you don't see us by dark call the search and rescue jokingly not thinking anything and like the brilliant guy i am i dropped into odessa canyon in a stock on 27's Suzuki Samurai. And so I ran Odessa's, Odessa Canyon because it wouldn't didn't have the power to go uphill. I ran Odessa Canyon all the way down through all the waterfalls and I didn't know there was a cut around a way to get around the uh, the gatekeeper and I drove through the gatekeeper with three kids no older than 10 on a stock open open Suzuki Samurai and there again I was hooked and after that it was every spare time diamond minute had that thing on the lift making cages and lockers and Toyota axles and that led to a, a Jeep of Kathleen's which she we would then go all over the country with uh, two cars on a trailer and we we did we became we, we've always been Team Izzy is the is the family name so when I raced mountain bikes Team Izzy if we raced motorcycles Team Izzy we never belonged to a club because we were run on a different speed you know most people are are up by 10 in the morning and we've done five trails by 10 in the morning so that's kind of our speed so we just kind of did stuff by ourselves and that's what hooked me on rock crawling and it wasn't a year later we were competing with a, a stock mod and having a lot of fun there and and uh, that led to meeting Dave Cole and pretty soon we were competing in pro mod and Dave's been a really great friend ever since then. 
Oh, absolutely. And then Jeff Knoll was a resident of Menifee. He grew up in Menifee. And his little ranchette was, how many miles from you? Is it, is it five miles? Less? Not even five. He's, prob- he's, he's probably three miles from me. And I didn't know Jeff well. I know of Jeff. And I knew kind of there was a guy somewhere. And one day I was go headed to a job site and I saw a sign that said, it was on a Saturday morning. I was headed to a job site and I saw a sign that said, you know, rock crawl. I don't remember what he called his organization, but and a sign that was pointing that direction. So I went down and I saw that, and I said, "Hey, that's pretty cool." And I obviously didn't make it to the job and and stayed and stayed and watched. But I never met Jeff. And then it was a few years later. I was asking for somebody that might have a Dana 60. I could measure an axle because I had to do some was building one and I needed to cut some stuff on the lathe. And uh, he said he had one I could come measure. And that's when I met Jeff. And that was right about the same time I met Dave. Um, and then Jeff was a really good friend. And, and we did a you know a lot of stuff together. We did chalk work on his buggy and exchanged ideas. And he was also in construction. So he and I kind of had the same, the same schedule. And so you guys are prepping, working, whatever, fabricating out of your shop, you know, behind your house there, Menifee. And Dave Cole's over there regularly with his pro mod. And Jeff starts hanging out there a little bit. And I think this is where some of the inklings, some of the napkin scratches, early formation of this idea of this thing that happens in February kind of happened. It was kind of in your nest behind uh, behind the Israelson house, Team Izzy. Yeah, a lot of a lot of that happened. I I believe they met at the, the Denny's uh, for the napkin conversation before we really got together. But then when Dave, Jeff and Dave, when Dave was coming down a lot, and that was a good opportunity for Jeff to come meet, they would meet a lot, and we, they would have a lot of the meetings, figuring out a lot of the A's and B's and and what they were going to do, and the dotting the I's and crossing the T's, and vice versa. In my in my shop while we were working on the car, um, my first inclination that there was going to be something is one day Dave comes down and and he's the, he comes late and he's limping, and I'm like, what's wrong with you? He said, I ran every hammer trail yesterday. I'm like, you did what? He said, I ran every hammer trail yesterday and here's the gps coordinates he has a handheld you know hiker's garment that has this list of stuff and i'm like what is that for and he kind of explained to me what this get together thing they were going to have in a little while was and i'm like you're crazy nobody's going to run 10 hammer trails in a day and uh, he said i just did it i'm like okay we'll see what you gotta be crazy to do that but you will see and then not much more of it yeah then it happened well not much more of it and then i'm (laughs) at work and I needed something for, for one of the Jeeps. So I stopped at the pickup part in off Millican up there in Ontario and my phone rings and it's Dave. And I said, what's up? He said, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm like working. He's like, no, you need to get your Jeep and get to the hammers tomorrow. I said, I my Jeeps in pieces. I can't do it. And he said, well, there's a guy you might know of him. You haven't met him. Um, he, he needs a midget that knows the hammers a little bit to fit in his car. And I'm like, well, I've <laughs> no, he said, actually, he told me uh, he, he needs somebody cool that's a midget that can fit in his car and knows the hammers a little bit. And I'm like, well, I'm a midget and I know the hammers. I don't know about the cool part. He said, come out anyway. So I called everybody I was supposed to set up the next day and said, I won't be there. I'm going to do a thing. And I roll up the next day at morning at 5 a.m. And I sit, think I sit and wait for half an hour. And pretty soon Scott rolls out of his trailer and and this is I, I Scott Ellinger, him. right? Scott and, Ellinger, yeah, I didn't say that. So Scott Ellinger, this guy I'm supposed to meet, what rolls out of his trailer, and he looks like he's driven all night. He had. He rolls out and said, hey, nice to meet you. He said, I think his quote to me was, I don't have anything to tease you about, so you must be okay, and you need to bolt the seat in your car. And only three bolts fit, but you'll be fine. The seatbelt holds you in. And that was how I met Scott Ellinger, and then I strapped in with him, and we went on the OG, which was a fun run. So 2007, OG, Scott was one of the the 12. You were his co-driver. And I recall a story you told me, and 
it might not be your story, but I think it's your story that you guys had a, your seat would catch on fire or the car would catch on fire and you would, you'd work your way up a hill and it'd just get hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter until it, and then you guys would crest the hill and you'd take off and you'd floor it and I'd put the flames out or something along those lines. So yeah, it happened on, it happened on one hill and then got, it got really hot on one hill and then on, so we were, we were going and we were, the way Dave set that up was pretty, pretty cool, but you'd, you'd, you'd pull up to a GPS coordinate, you know, like the big rocks going into outer limits and there'd be a notebook and you'd stop and you'd write the time you got there and then you'd continue on. We take off, Dave drops his arms and somebody moons us and we take off and no nets, no nothing. I think I was the only one in the whole field where I wore a helmet. Maybe Jack Graf did too, I can't remember. I had these yellow gloves on, so there's some pictures of a guy holding with a yellow glove holding the, the B pillar of, or the a pillar of Scott Ellinger car and that was me. We'd get there and then I think there was a cluster on outer limits and we cut a tire and I think we borrowed like 30 plugs from Hobie Smith to get the tire fixed and we continue on and so we're running a little bit behind and then we're following Tracy Jordan and he takes off into the marine base. I don't know how he didn't get arrested and I told Scott we can't turn there we got to go this right way so we go up Devil's Slide and as we're going up Devil's Slide I got my seats getting hot and pretty soon they're smoking. I, I remember flames. I think Scott will say there weren't flames but he wasn't in that seat. I'm pretty sure there were flames and we crest the top and go down the other side and going fast enough with the going through and the exhaust not so hot it stopped burning but yeah every time we he'd be having to give it gas and not go very fast that seat would burn see i was impressed with myself that i actually remembered that story from you telling me a decade ago yeah yeah that was... i actually had most of the details that's actually that's an amazing story uh scott ellinger he's a he's a colorado guy right yep. yeah yep. That, I, i've never met him and I've, you've actually thrown out a couple names there of guys that you know, were in that og12 that were very amazing rock crawler guys back in the day and then they've uh you know they're just you know they're not around anymore they've moved on to other things in their in their life like like you mentioned tracy jordan that guy was you know an amazing rock crawler you know oh, champion yeah, the best in his engineering, his skill to overthink a car and take it to the next level was bar none. Yeah, I, you know, I think I think he still has that. It wasn't too many years ago that he I saw a Polaris Razor that I think it was a Razor that he was building to to to, uh, to race, and I just looked at it briefly. I was out there doing something else, and I looked at it briefly, and I'm like, that thing looks like a spaceship. If that's if I'm thinking of the wrong the right car, but I'm pretty sure it was one he was building. That he didn't end up racing for some reason the ECM or something fried, or I don't remember what was but um he you know one of the legends of rock crawling but all those guys i mean jt taylor i think was there um hobie smith um brett uh brett was there uh i think eric anderson was there but i think he was co-driving with somebody anyway uh john james just just guys that were were staples of the the rock crawling and and really the the hammer scene at the time were out there it was it was a really good time it was it was great to share that that was some of those guys Absolutely. I mean, it's the it's the roots of where that sport has came from. It's yeah, uh, yeah just an amazing event that Dave and Jeff were able to pull off. And it's so cool to you know have the conversation with you about being there, and then the crazy story about how you were there and what happened during the event. Uh, just just nuts. And then John Reynolds went on to win that in that car that uh, Rob Bender Park had built, that Bronco, the black with green flames. And then yeah, yeah. that thing was at SEMA a few weeks ago, last week. And last um, week, yeah. If I understood right from Bender, that car is going to be racing at KOH this year in, I guess, the Legends class. Yeah, it would be 4800 if it's, it was a single shot car then, so it's probably the same now. 
So I found that to be the coolest information I heard in the past week was that that car, former King, is going to come back and uh, and do work in February. And it, now, if that's wrong and if my intel is wrong, I'll 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 eat it. But that was uh, that was from Bender. Bender told me that and I'm going to throw him under the bus that if my information was wrong. How about we just put it this way? We all wish it had happened so much that maybe it will. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's spot on. I will absolutely run with that. That'd be really cool to see that car out there. It was such an icon back in the day. And, and I'll just tell you, that I rode in it with JR and, and, and whoever races it, please let me help him with shocks. Yeah, he uh, <laughs> and I will tell you that the current owner, he is, he listens to the show. He's a good guy. <laughs> so around this era, like I said, there's a lot of nights and weekends going on in your shop with a lot of guys coming over, a lot of work being done, a lot of engineering and re-engineering and working things out. And that went on for years. And if anyone hasn't figured this out just through this interview or have heard Wayne or dad mentioned in the past, he's an engineer. He has an engineering mindset. He thinks things through very much in an analytical way, mechanically taking things apart, re-engineering them, figuring out how they work or how to make them better. And he's had a couple a couple products I know across the the years that that he's been known by he doesn't you know do a lot with them today but when I first met him you were experimenting with wiffle balls and fuel systems for baffling and you had a story that was like you you guys maybe the Hartmans and maybe Jeff Noel were involved every time you went by a sports store you would pick up a different brand of wiffle balls and you had all these test buckets in your shop of fuel race fuel with different colored and different size and different brands of wiffle balls trying to determine which wiffle ball company's plastic did not break down to race gas so so yeah and, and actually race gas is easier on than, than pump gas but um so that that story comes from it was common to get to i've spent many hours in the desert before that with my arm up to my shoulder in the race in the fuel whatever race fuel and non-race fuel trying to get all the foam out so i could clean the filter one more time and keep racing and that's because the black foam that comes in the stock fuel cells at that time that black foam does not it does not like old fuel it does not like ethanol and it likes to break down so all the foam, all the foam that you get will break down just by motion. But but the black foam is probably the worst. The yellow foam probably gives you five years and then it breaks down. It's uh it's not a great it's not a great way to baffle a tank. I have not to this day found anybody that can give me any flame front propagation information. Truly, um, they say there it's out there, but you won't be able to find it. There's lots of flame front propagation, flame front propagation data data done by the military over octagon and spherical perforated baffles and lots of other stuff. And so it all comes from long old school desert racers, and we were just copying old school desert racers. But what happened was, as manufacturing started to happen in China, they started to use peat and PVC and ABS and 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 uh, styrene for wiffle balls because that's what they had, and there was no real spec. Um, high density polyethylene will hold up, but but nothing else will. And, and at one point, we were doing all these tests and found that there was one particular red and blue. And Sean Dunn and the guys at uh, FOJB actually helped us find these these Target brand wiffle balls. They were blue and red. They were red, white, and blue, but the white ones didn't hold up. You had to just use the blue and the 
the red ones, and we would buy every every time we'd all interviews would be at a target, we'd buy them all up. But we also had every other wiffle ball you could buy anywhere to figure out what happened, you know, what would was lasting. And the Hartmans actually ran a different one after doing some testing in Vegas to Reno. But what they didn't do with the test of the bucket sitting in the backyard was heat and agitation actually made the reaction faster, and they ended up with uh, with <laughs> poly poly spaghetti in their tank after a while. So that was a big learning curve for the Hartmans. Um, and what we're talking about here for anyone, we lose people. I know this one is going to be very techy as we go further and further into shock tuning. But what we're talking about is the fuel cell on a race car or even in your car. We baffling it, keeping what's called a, what would you call it? Liquid hammer from when you slam on the brakes or slosh really, but just slosh. weight transfer, just, just weight transfer. Keeping the fuel from slamming to the front of the tank or sides left, right. And if it does that enough, it weakens the tank and eventually will split the sides and things along those lines. We're talking about baffling that to try to slow that slosh down. So, so yeah, in, in any big event that would actually cause enough weight transfer and a big enough force impact to break the tank, you want to dissipate all the energy of that moving liquid. So it helps with normal driving to just stabilize the liquid and you don't feel the slosh, but it also helps in the big event and the rollover where you don't split the tank open while you're rolling over and then cause a fire that's coating everything because you've dissipated energy. So we're trying to figure out ways to do that. And foam is a decent way to do that, but not with water, not with, with fuel because it breaks it down. And then you end up deciding, you know, I'm going to build a better mousetrap here. And you reached out to some manufacturers, you got some samples, and you started making your own your own baffles. Yeah. So basically what happened is we just couldn't buy high-density polyethylene wiffle balls anymore. It just became too hard to find them. So I thought, well, why don't we just figure out a way to make something? And, and I, I came up with the simplest, cheapest way to do it is just to make a cylinder. If you made a thin wall cylinder that laid randomly in the tank, um, it still did the same thing. It still changed direction of the fuel as it sloshed, still did everything. And the biggest thing that it did that a sphere doesn't do is it didn't retain any, any zero. It doesn't retain any... Uh, or fuel or liquid so you could use all the liquid you could get in the tank would end up at the bottom of the tank you wouldn't have small pools in the in the spherical part of the ball that didn't have a hole in it and so that was a benefit so i i had a, a mold made to make some some stuff and what we found that was we did a, um, a blow mold process and i had a mold made and spent the money to do that we found that blow mold doesn't get the poly the high density polyethylene hot enough and when you agitate and heat it will come apart in flakes so I own a mold that doesn't do me any good right now. So then I found another way to produce them that actually came out very well and made it far cheaper to do. And, and I was able to uh, produce what we call the 4x4 four four baffle, which is a 4-inch by 4-inch cylinder, 40-thou thick wall. They work very well. They're not the fix to everything. You can't really use a swing-style gauge sender, you know, fuel gauge sender in a tank that way. But they, they, they did what I wanted them to do. And we still have some and we still, we still sell them. But I don't know that I'm going to order because I have to spend 10 grand to order enough every time. And I'm kind of focused on on some different kind of hardware that I'm trying to trying to get out right now. What are the you know the top teams that you work with? What are they running in their tanks today? Uh, so, if, you know, the trophy truck guys run yellow foam, but they change it out every year. OK, that's that's what I assumed happens. But and we have I've run with teams where Laughlin last year, two teams had foam breakdown and blow up motors just because you can't you can, those those trophy truck motors are, are pissed off and angry. And when you have a pissed off, angry motor that goes lean, it just destroys itself. 
since I mentioned it, that you've worked with some teams, you have a, your resume, as far as it's concerned, your portfolio of teams that you've worked for or worked on or co-driven for is absolutely probably one of the best in the industry. Like you've worked, you've literally worked with everybody from Rob Mack. I mean, the winningest driver in off-road history. You worked with the Poison Spider guys. Justin Lofton. Lofton had a little bit of a foray in NASCAR, and then he's been just an off-road contender, multiple Mint 400 winner. Bryce Menzies. Menzies, we've seen Menzies in Pro 2. We've seen him in Pro 4. He does some amazing stunts. He does some UTV stuff. And then his stuff in uh, the trophy truck or the T1s. You know, he's got currently that brand new all-wheel drive, beautiful sex on wheels, 1,000-plus horsepower four-wheel drive. Yeah, it's a work of art for sure. Camberg, Ben Napier Racing. You got Fox, everything you did at Fox. I worked there for a minute or two, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, Cam Steele and all the Desert Assassins, which is a a cool story. You and I were setting plans to tune my car for an event. I'm not, I, I don't remember exactly which event. We were trying to get flanged up, and you gave me a call like, okay, we need to nail down this day because I've got Cam Steele trying to figure out what day he can, you know, tune his trophy truck. I want to say it was for one of the Baja races. I'm gonna guess it was probably the thousand. I said, you know, this is the day I'm getting in from Texas. I'm towing my car all the way from Texas, and you're like, okay, well, I'll just tell Cam he's the next day. And I'm like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. I've seen Cam Steele, you know, announcing on ESPN. He's been on, you know, he's this legend. He's this, just this amazing individual. And he's now announced multiple times at KOH. He's, uh, he's just into everything. He might be a rock donkey before long, too. No, I think he almost is. And uh, he's because he's going to race KOH this year with um, Cody Wagner's car, IFS, IRS. Does that car have a name? Pure Sex? Sex on wheels or is pure sex, maybe it is. So, something like that. I, I, I have a hard time calling that car that name because I feel like you shouldn't be able to name your car. I think someone else has to name it. Every time I think of that name, I can see Stuart humping the wheel. I just can't do it. Yeah, I've, and I've seen <laughs> that picture too. And uh, yeah, it is an amazing car though. Um, I saw pictures of it from last week at Seaman. You know, it's, it is absolutely gorgeous. But where I was going with that was you've absolutely been involved with the top teams in the business, in the off-road industry for the better part of 15 years, the last 10, even further, the last five, six, even amazing. You've got numerous you know, podiums and victories in the right seat with uh, with Rob Mack. That's Rob McCachron for those that didn't get the abbreviation that he's commonly known by, but yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been really blessed. I when, when you and I met, it was the crash of 2008, and my, my business took a bit of a hit, and I'm surprised I had any friends left from there because I was pretty cranky during the whole section of that whole time. But, you know, even ever since then, I, I, I had to kind of step away from racing just because the money wasn't as good as it used to be, and I was trying to trying to get, save the business and make sure everything was good. And I was really blessed to have some really good people to come and just say, hey, look, uh, we could use your help or, you know, even even pay me a little money to come do some of that stuff. And it allowed me to continue to keep learning what I what I love. And that's just racing, you know, Any, anything with with four wheels, two wheels, anything with wheels and an internal combustion engine, I'm going to be trying to beat you in it. And it just allowed me to continue to do that. And I think I've learned a, a great deal over the last little while from being able to experience diff- not just different genres, because I have a lot of that, but different people. It's 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 crazy how people finish two seconds off of each other and they're so different in their driving style. What I found to be absolutely the most amazing thing about your story is that era in that 08, 09, 10 we were going to guys to get tuning, suspension tuning of these solid axle cars. There was only a couple of IFSs out at that time, but suspension tuning on solid axle, solid axle front, solid axle rear. 
and they were few and far between. No one, you know, we, you and I went in the desert with uh, Joel Ward when Joel was at Bilstein, and we went to to Gene there, Gene, Nevada, and tuned there solid axle cars. And it was a guessing game. It was, it really was. And those guys weren't obviously tuning is a lot of black box. You know, it's a lot of what's going on in that tuner's mind. But the thing was, there wasn't minds that had wrapped their heads around the solid axle tune. And here comes Wayne and you had enough experience with enough cars and you knew what worked and you started getting your Wayne brain on them and figuring out how you could make fast, solid axles. And that's kind of really taken, you took solid axles to the next level. You're, I mean, things like Miller still competing with a solid axle today. He's still running off, you know, some tune tech that really came out of you in the early years of how to make a solid axle go fast, right or wrong. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to take all the credit. I, I, I certainly figured out how to make my car go fast on a mistake. This is a good story. So uh, it was windy, and we were trying to do one more tune, and I tune, and we were just changing one shim because we hadn't been able to make progress all day long. And we put the shocks together quickly in the wind and went out, and it was night and day different. It was like, what just happened? Couldn't wrap my head around it, so I took them back. I took them apart, I think, in the motorhome. To, at the behest of my wife, and uh, I had put a piston upside down. And so my big rebound stack that was trying to control all that all that mass was actually on the compression side. And that little tiny compression stack that I was trying to use, thinking we had no spring rate, so we didn't need much, uh, you know, much compression was on the compression side. And that was just in one shock, but the car went from undrivable in the bumps to, I think we might have something here. I went to walk around that little mountain there. I just left the lake bed and I went for a walk in the wind just trying to figure out what happened. And I got about halfway around what we call King Mountain now, where they put the king signs up. And I'm like, holy crap, it's not mass, it's inertia. We're fighting inertia, we're not fighting mass. I mean, we're fighting inertia. We're fighting mass, yes, but moving mass has inertia. So we're fighting inertia. We don't need more rebound to control that mass. We need less. And so I went went back and I I, uh, did one more revalve where I just flipped everything. I just put a I think the text I sent to, to Chupa was, holy shims, Batman. And I just put a shitload of shims. Oh, I should, I should I should put a whole bunch of shims on the compression side, and I lighten up the rebound stack, and all of a sudden we had a race car. And uh, I always I always remember that day because it was one of those learn from a mistake kind of thing. I made a mistake, something happened, and then I was able to kind of slow down and process it and figure out, holy crap. And then that was in 09. And then I did a bunch of work and I re- revamped my car and put bypasses on the back and did a lot of work to it in 10. And I didn't refine it, but I got a direction. You know what I mean? If tuning is often just like prospecting, you're out there in the in, with your pen and you're looking, you start to find a nugget here and there. And that tells you to go that way. And that's kind of what I'd done in, in 10. And then I worked on Ben's car and got to work with Aribe a little bit in 11. And we kind of had, we kind of were on the same path, Aribe and I. And when I say same path, he was kind of figuring the same same thing out, and I I was had taken it kind of a different direction, and we were kind of I think the two of us, and neither one of us are ever going to admit this. I think the two of us fed off each other and kind of learned from what we were saying when I was working on Ben's car and Randy's car a little bit, and then I branched off and didn't do a lot of tuning with other tuners for a while there when. I worked on Rick Mooneyham's car and Eric Miller's car, and that was about the time when, you know, I, I, I kind of figured out that, you know, we knew what to do with desert cars. We didn't know what to do with a solid axle car, and then we kind of figured out something not anybody or not very many people knew, and that was when I started to actually see if I could service people, and I was still, you know, painting at the time, but just trying to service people with uh, tuning as well as the other things we were building at Alltech, and Alltech was just a night and weekend thing at that time. 
Yeah, you were making fuel pump systems and the notorious Izzy locks for the 9-inch to right. keep ring gears from falling off of uh, the carriers. A bunch of innovative projects. I, I know I came to you for when I was building my car. You know, I guess it's probably 14 or so. I came to you. I think it, every product that was on the Izzy shelf found its way into that car. It was, it was awesome. Those were things that you never I never had to worry about. Yeah, and then we got with you for tuning as well. And I remember getting a text message. I wasn't even there before it. I get a text message from, it might have been from you, but I, if it wasn't from you, it was from Easy Rick Mooney Hammond. You guys were in the hammers, and the message I got was, this is the fastest car I've ever had out here. And I'm here in Texas going like, you know, like, you know, fist pumping the, the sky like, yes, she works. <laughs> I think I think that was so we were out there on the MDR course and uh, we'd, we'd struggled with your car a little bit, honestly. And we d we did a spring change and it was one that Rick said, look, we just need to go more spring. And I said, OK. And I did the math and I'm like, is, that was a good learning experience, too, because, you know, it, it was one of those ones where you learn slowly, but you, you learn, hey, if the car asks for it, give it to it. Just because it doesn't agree with the math, the car's asking for more spring. We could tell it was asking for more spring in hindsight. We could see ev all the evidence was there. And finally, he just convinced me and said, it just needs more spring. You even said it needs more spring. And I'm like, OK, let's do it. And we put what the math would say is way too much spring on it. And that car just came to life. It was pretty crazy. Now, there was a, a day where I, f I flew into Vegas, I grabbed the rental car, I drive down to Lake Havasu City to Trick Toy Fabric, Easy Rick's shop there in Lake Havasu, and we're going over things, and the thing was, man, you know, we need these springs for the car. This is before you saw it, and the springs we had were just wrong. Uh, they, on paper, it looked like it was going to be right, but they were wrong. And he's like, well, I mean, what do you want to do? I was like, well, I got to head to Corona. Yeah, an old car tech. Yeah, I get in the rental car and I le I leave out. I don't know, 10 p.m. I I'm sitting there in the car tech parking lot when they open, and I fill the trunk of this rental car up with. I think I bought like 30 sets of springs, and we hauled hauled them all to Havasu. I was back there by you know noon, one o'clock, something like that, and and then we just fidgeting through and and working through it. And then Rick's like, well, "What are you gonna do with all these?" I'm like. I changed my flight not to Vegas to be out of Ontario, and I'm going back to CarTech and returning all all these and returning my car in Ontario. And he's like, "Are you serious?" I was like, "Yeah, I mean, that's that's." Can you tell me another option? I can't return all these springs in uh, Vegas. You know, it's funny. Bring up Easy Rick. I was just at his shop yesterday getting a set of springs for a car. I was working out out in Parker, um, so I stopped by and I was bummed I didn't have time to go to lunch with him. But uh, it was good to see Rick again. I hadn't seen him in a little while. Now he's an awesome guy, and and I love I love Lake Havasu City. I really do. I took my wife there once, and it was when we were when we were racing this car. I want to say it was for the Mint Four Hundred. We'd flown in, and we wake up in the morning, and we walk outside, and it's a it's beautiful. We got there in the dark, and you walk out, you know, in Lake Havasu, and you know, you got the the river, the lake, the the mountains. It's just gorgeous. And she turns and she looks at me and says, "I will know that you want to kill me when you try to move me here." <laughs> And I'm like, huh? And she goes, I can feel my skin drying out as I talk. <laughs> like, like I'm going to turn to dust and crumble like that character at the very end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, no, right. Uh, of the Last Crusade, sorry, of, uh, of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Like yeah, that character. Right. 
Oh man, no, yeah, but yeah, Rick is Rick is good people. I've always tried to surround myself with good people, so that's how that relationship came to be. And you guys helping to make that car, you know, uh, but, you know, just wonderful and uh, just a, a blast to drive. But man, we tuned a lot with that car with you. We met in Barstow a couple times. Yeah. We met uh, in Parker a couple times, and then uh, at least one time at Apex north of Vegas. At least once working on you know, you just have to do your homework. You just always have to stay on it. And anytime you can take that opportunity to make yourself faster, anytime you can get time with the wizard, you know, with dad here, you take advantage of it. I guess what I'm talking about is that genesis of you and the rock donkeys, rock donkeys being these four wheel drive cars with 39 to 40 inch tires, solid axles. And I believe it was the, the, the late great pistol Pete who named a rock donkeys. Is that, yeah. is that yeah. who, who gave that? Uh, it's, yeah. it's and it's and it's very fitting. I think uh, there was many people that embraced that embraced that moniker and ran with it. I think uh, Dave Cole was one of the first ones to embrace that. I think he had Rock Donkey Racing for any of his Baja efforts. I think uh, I think that was genius. I wear it proudly. I wear it proudly along with Redneck. I wear both of those monikers proudly. So you've helped a lot of teams go fast. I mean, a lot. And we've kind of we've named them. One of the main things I wanted to have you on today was to dig into your brain on that technical side and what it has truly taken to make trucks and cars, you know, elevate, elevate their game. You know, we saw, you know, in Baja, the vehicles have been racing for 50, you know, 60 years and where their technology has come. Well, Ultra 4 is only, let's call it barely over 10 years old of kind of modern era. And you've been a big, significant part of bringing that shock tech and the shock tech is where it's at. If it doesn't matter if you have 400 500 600 700 a thousand horsepower that we're seeing out there today if you can't dampen that 40 inch tire going up and down at 130 when you're on the fast or crawl up and down a rock face at three miles an hour you can't get through the course so i want to dig into your brain on that where do you start so it's been a, I mean, it's just a, an ever-changing evolution. I, I get guys tell me, I read a thing that you did back in whatever, 2004, where this is what you wanted. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've learned since then. So, um, you, you know, it's it, it basically comes down to a pretty simple set of concepts that you just need to kind of stay t- true to. That what, what I discovered or what I discovered years ago when I was doing motorcycles is it's just management of energy. All you're trying to do is manage energy. And then once you understand you're just managing energy, and every event is what X energy, you know, whatever BTUs you do. And then you can convert those many BTUs in the shock from kinetic to heat. You can manage the suspension. And, and from there, you just have to learn. You just have to go through a, a relatively simple process. It's It takes time. That's the big thing. But it's a simple process of if I do this, what happens? And if it tells me to go left, I go left. And then I do another thing. And if it tells me to go right from there, I go right. Because really, when you're... When you're tuning a car that you you don't have any data on it, it's a little different when we work with OEs because they give us a relatively detailed data string that they've spent millions of dollars to compile. But in racing, nobody spends that money. Nobody knows the data other than what they or other than our experience. So you're trying to find the center of a circle, and how you generally find the center of a circle is draw draw lines, you know, through through the edges, and then that gives you the center. We don't know where the edges of the circle is, so we need to find the center of the circle by searching around. And that's why I gen I usually call the first couple visits of a car prospecting. You know, I'm I'm learning how to talk to the driver because I can't watch and ride at the same time. I won't necessarily ride with every driver. No offense to anybody that I haven't ridden with, but you know, I've also I've been flipped and crashed enough. I don't need to do that anymore. So I have to be careful with who I ride with. 
And so you only have a given set of inputs. And so the first thing you have to learn to do is talk to the driver. You know, Chicky Barton, love him to death, but he would come in and say, it's all jankity, Wayne. Well, to me, after I learned what that jankity means, Chicky can say that to me because I know what it is. But the first time I heard it, it was pretty funny. So I got off topic a little bit there, but you, you go through this process. That's actually spot on talk. That's spot on topic. So so you you go through this process where you learn what the driver's trying to tell you. You learn where the car's leading you. You go as far as you can with the given amount of daylight or time that you have. You devise a plan for where we want to go next, and that could be, mean anything. And then from there, you, you make a plan. And it's a little bit like your, your house cleaner. She's going to come back next week and charge you the, again the same amount. But um, I hate to do that, but there's just no possible, no way that I've discovered that I can give you a, I have, I, I can give you the whole package in a day. The way we say it is 20% of the time gets you 80% of the performance. And then the next 80% of the time gives you the last 20% of the performance. And you look at guys like Rob or Bryce or Justin, you think that Justin's truck looks great. And every time I see it, I want to do something else to it because I can see something I don't like. But, you know, but they tune. I was out with Justin last week. Uh, you know, you, you you go out and Rob, Rob will tune before the thousand again. Maybe he won't tune, but he'll bump it and he'll do an adjustment. And, you know, I made made some stuff for some of those guys that is adjustable for me in the cab. So they're adjusting as they go. But that that's that's the mindset is if you, if you think you're going to get it all done in one day, then you're going to have to be satisfied with about an 80% car. An 80% car is going to be a lot of fun. You're going to get finishes and have cool stories. Race that if that's what you're capable of. If you want to be 100%, every time you go out in that car, you got to make a change and see what it does and see if it's better and see if it's worse. And it's not just suspension. You know, a lot of guys set their, pre, their, their toe in at eighth inch in and think that's all and they never touch it again. But the good guys will have run every toe in possible and figure out what's the best. And, and that goes to every system in the entire car. So, you know, back to suspension is it's a pretty simple thing and and it just takes time to go through the process. But the biggest thing you have to do before you get out to the desert is you at least have to have a baseline on springs. And the springs are very important to have a baseline on is because they're probably the hardest thing to change in and change out and mess with while you're in the desert. And so over the years and different cars have different frequencies that they like. And over the years, we've just kind of developed a way to get the car ballpark and without having to calculate, you know, uh, natural undamped frequency, which is there's calculators all that, out there and all that stuff, but they all, I've nev never found one that hits the mark. And you, I can do the math, but I don't want to because it takes me too long. So um, basically, you, you just got to find the right spring combination that gives you about between one to two inches of preload in the front and between two and, eight, and three inches of preload in the rear and gets you the ride height you desire. And then ride height is another thing. If you want to have a car that rides good, you can't have two inches of off travel. You've got to, got to give the shop room to work. And you can do things that will help and do that. And there's band-aids for everything that we found, but you can't you can't have your cake and eat it too unless you're willing to to give a little here or give a little there, if if that makes any sense. Have you gotten to the point where guys have come to you pre-build for specs of, you know, eye to eye? Well, I mean, yes, I get I get people continuously that I, I one of my other services we do at Alltech is, is is I will visit your shop and do the spec and do, you know, calculate your motion ratio or review your CAD drawings. And, and you know, I do that for, for some of the teams that are mentioned there. And I, I don't really want to tell everybody who I work for because I just work for whoever is on the phone with me at the time, honestly. But there's people that have new ideas that will call me and say, what if we did X, Y, Z? And then we can go through the pluses and minuses. You know, we want to 
we want the car to be really progressive, you know, and, and especially the rear rear suspension, and or we want to do independent rear suspension, which is great, you know, but we want to do it like this, and then you can go through and and just run the numbers, and and there's a lot of numbers out there that that are there that people think they know, but <laughs> I don't know how to say it other than a number that works in one parameter doesn't work in another in one configuration doesn't work in another configuration. So it's taken a lot of years for me to of, of watching that stuff to figure a lot of the four link calculator we always used to use in, in Pirate was pretty good because we all had the same basic rear geometry, the same I mean it was different, but it was basically a four link or a three link and we used it. Now there's a lot of twin traction beam with four link and parallel four link and single triangulated and wishbone stuff and some numbers match and, and work the same and then you get into independent rear suspension like razors and canams and that that sends you know the the forces go different directions and i don't know what i'm trying to say there other than i get a lot of people that that do ask me to consult with them and we have to spend a lot of time just figuring out load pass and that kind of stuff to make the suspension work right but we've been pretty successful on most of them no, I think it's cool that you brought up, you know, the four-link calculator, you know, Dan Barcroft. I met him with you at Vegas Torino that year. He bandaged my finger. He's quite a guy. I hope he listens to this show. I haven't talked to him in, you know, quite a few years. Uh, I haven't but, seen you know, him forever as well. Yeah, he's his, he lives on in legacy. I think oh, we might be Facebook friends. I, I should probably send him a link and be like, you know what? I've talked about you quite a bit here lately, and I yeah. haven't seen I should give you some credit. But no, I find that the consulting side very interesting in the fact that it costs a lot of money to put together a car and to build a car and just to pull it out of the shop for the first time and then to show up and go tune it. And it would, yeah, it just seems to me it would behoove a lot of people to do the consulting up front. Do not go and try to recreate the wheel when the wheel has somewhat been, you know, worked out. That's so. Th there, there's two theories to that, and I, I love. The cars that I hate, the cars that, that keep me up in, at night, the cars that I can't figure out and take me tons and tons of time and effort to work on, and I feel bad at the end of the day that I didn't figure this out and I'm letting the customer down, are the cars I grow to love, just like that 2009 Vegas Torino was, was the hardest race, and I was done with it, and I think back to it almost every day of my life because they're the ones you learn. They're the ones that teach me, you know, the, the some of the hardest cars. The, the, the Yamaha YXZ was probably the hardest thing I've worked on. It taught me a lot of about how progressive you can really be in the suspension and what what's good what's bad and where they're good and where they're bad and you know and uh just there's been a lot of cars you know there's there's been some mid-engine solid axle cars that have that have really really thrown me for a loop and they're the ones that i remember you know like this is what we did to figure that and this car's acting the same let's try it and pretty soon you realize why because there's a force path that does something weird or something like that that, that really uh really that's ones you learn on the harder the harder ones and I, that's kind of my whole lesson in life the things that have kicked my butt and made me go home and want to cry for mama are the ones that I actually end up learning the most for the most from and then and then remembering and loving you know ultra four was that way well you bringing this up is something that has been brought up to me and this was you know with my, the times that I've been out tuning with you and I've had people ask me like why are you why are you tuning it again why are you out there again why are you spending that money again and I can't believe you're you know using you know not just Wayne just are I can't believe that you're spending the money to tune again and I'm I'm like man it's it's worth it though and they're like well what are you getting from it you're getting a little bit faster I go no I'm getting the tribal knowledge that I don't have I'm getting you know, in this case it's you because that's you were the tuner that I've always used I'm I'm gaining access to what is in your brain uh, the 
your your computer, your Wayne computer that is has seen and done many things, I'm gaining access to that tribal knowledge. And that's what I'm paying for is the tribal knowledge. And then that's 80% of what you're paying for. And then the other 20% is the your vision and eyes watching the thing go across the whoops and fixing it. In theory, that 80% that you're paying for is the, the knowledge base of getting you right before you even start the car and pull away from the trailer. So there's there's a lot to be said for that because I've ha- I've been the beneficiary of been a beneficiary of that for years. You know, you work with somebody that has you know that you you work with all different kinds of tuners, different kind of people in all industries. But the ones you love to work with, the guy that's an open book, and and I probably give away more info than I should when I'm out there. But I just don't. I feel like if I treat a customer like like he's he's the customer, and he's the guy, and I'm not going to hide anything from him. I'm not going to hide your shim stack. I'll hand you your shim stack. Here's here's how I figured your spring rate. This is what we want. This is and he knows more at the end of the day than when he got there. I may get a call from him from the race. Wayne, it's doing this, and I can say, yeah, but remember what we did this and what we did the crossover. Run that crossover down a little bit, and it will help. And and then he gets to learn. And pretty soon, it's not that he doesn't need me, but the basics are good. So when he gets to me, we're better off, and he's actually happier because you know. And and I find I get more repeat customers and more loyal people and more friends. Honestly, I, I just hired a new general manager. He's a great guy and he's he's running and he told me the other day he said everybody walks in and says i'm wayne's good friend and i'm like well i have a few good friends but the whole rest of the world that comes in they are my friends and we need to treat them like that we don't send an invoice without a personal email we don't do that kind of stuff because these are our friends everybody we work with is our buddy and if they're not we've done something wrong Word of mouth for Wayne is huge. I mean, when Fox a few years ago was looking around for who to fill his shoes to tune for them, Fox Racing came to you and you tuned for everybody that was Fox equipped. You had the toter, you had the trailer, you you handled them. Yeah, that was a funny story. I'm walking around Expo and uh, my phone's blown up in the whole world. Uh, John Marking's looking for you. And I knew who John Marking was, but I'd never met him. And then Shannon runs in and says, you better go find John Marking. He's looking for you. And I didn't have any idea what John wanted. But I see a guy talking to Shannon out of the Fox booth. And I, I kind of just put two and two together and knew who it was. So I was leaving, actually. And I just went out and I, I shook Shannon's hand and said, good to see you, Shannon. I'll see you around. And then turned to walk away, kind of no, kind of setting it up. And the whole world's, hey, wait, wait, wait. You got to see this is john i'm like hello john how are you um you know and and we we met and then i went down down to fox and he you know we hit it off real well he was another engineer another see i'm not an, an engineer i don't have my ticket i high school educated barely but he's another you know uh um occupational engineer that's built a lot of stuff and we were on the same page on a lot of stuff he's just a really really smart guy and i was it was good to work with him because i learned a lot i'm actually one of my disappointments from from working at, at fox was that i didn't get to work as much with john as i wanted to because he's just got a lot to teach um but but the stuff I did learn from him, I really learned a lot and I really respect him. It was funny. We, we kind of hit it off when I went down to meet him at his, his office. And I guess I'd got some good reviews from Shannon and some good reviews from Eric Miller and some people had recommended me. So that, that worked out really well. When you were working for Fox, you were you know, tuning for, again, more people are seeing you, more people are seeing your name, and you ended up paired up, matched up with Rob McCachron. And Rob had, you know, well, he's the winningest off-road driver in history. He's, you know, from short course to desert, everywhere, he's just successful. He's just a, he's just that type of guy. He's a good dude. And I don't know, you got to tell me how, tell us all how you and Rob hook up and your your buddies, and Rob decides he wanted to race King of the Hammers. You end up in the right seat for him then you end up in the right seat with him in his trophy truck uh multiple multiple years so let, let me I, let me just go through the whole fox scenario so it'll explain it a little better so 
meet with John because Fo- Rob and Fox are connected really tight. So meet with John and John wants to hire me and I, I've just got this fledgling business. I've just quit painting altogether and I'm all text running full steam. And I think Cabrera was working for me at the time, Chupa. And we were, you know, we were, we were having growing pains and learning, but we were doing well and we were flying and, and John tries to hire me and I just put too big a number on it. And he said, we can't do that. And I said, cool. And I was happy about that. And he said, but I want you a contract. And so he contracts me for, for, for a pretty good sum to, to work a few days a month just to be on basically retainer. And uh, I'm at King of the Hammers and uh, contracting for them. And we tuned Rob and Larry and Lance wasn't there yet, but Lance Clifford rode with Rob that year in, in Crispy. And they didn't have a great year, but I'm, I'm at King of the Hammers the week before and my phone rings on a text and it's uh, Joe Moore at Fox. And he said, uh, you need to be at Glen Helen this date because Rob McEachern wants to work on the short course truck. And I'm like, oh, okay. It's going to be cool. I have done some work on short course trucks, but never at anybody that level. But done Pro Lights and Corey Weller's Pro 4 and a bunch of Pro 2s, um, Tabla Duke and, and some of that stuff. But I never, you know, Rob, he's kind of the pinnacle, at least in my eyes at the time. And so I'm like, cool. I even still have that old phone to save that text because it was kind of one of those moments in your career when you're like, I rescinded. Maybe I am somebody. Dave Cole always says, I'll be somebody when they can spell my name. So he purposely misspells my name every time he writes it, just so you know. So if you spell my name right in this podcast, I'm going to be disappointed. I had to actually go to Facebook to confirm the spelling of your name because I had it in my phone wrong. Yeah, perfect. That's exactly what yeah. I wanted to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just a nobody with the, that's been blessed and lucky. So anyway, we go out, we work with Rob that day, and uh, and he's like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I just want to see it run. I want to see what you're doing and talk to you and figure out your theory and philosophy. And we just kind of hit it off. And at the end of the day, he said, he made, I don't remember, but he told me the amount of changes we made. And he said, we didn't go backwards once. I'm like, good, I guessed right today. And he said, yeah, that's good. I was really happy. We're, we're going to work again. And then one of the cars had blown the motor up previously and they were getting it together and a couple weeks later we worked on the pro 2 i think and it was going good and i got to met blackmore and, and warren mitchell and, and jimmy um just a bunch of his crew which are just great people and that's the biggest thing when i was contracting with fox i just got to meet so many people that i never had the opportunity to meet before my skill set didn't change but i got such a bigger idea stream that flowed in that that you learn more you know when you get that all those ideas and you see the different things you just get to learn so much and so it went on and i worked on the trophy truck with Rob and they all invited me to go out with them to sorry it's a long story but you're gonna have to hear it they invited me to go to Henderson with them so because we were gonna go testing after Henderson and Henderson's in early December and King of Hammers push was on but I decided I'm gonna take the time I'm gonna do it and I go out and I help all the Fox people and then I go to the race with Rob and watch them do and they had a problem I think with a crank position sensor that that uh, died and and uh, we go out testing the next day and we're standing on that section where you've seen a lot of video from the mint that goes down into uh, the lake bed that's just got those big huge sand rollers but you can do 120 or so on it oh just before gene yeah okay so this is after gene on the other side of gene going down toward prim and uh we're standing there and i watch the truck go by i'm like oh come back around i mean i do just a small little quarter turn change and rob always wants to know what i do a change when i did a change and i told him i won't tell you after we can i will but i won't tell you before because you'll get an idea because he's one of the most knowledgeable drivers i've ever worked with he would know when i did a change before he rolled across the parking lot it was pretty crazy to to see that and so he drives and he comes back says way better everywhere and even on the stuff where 
we were fighting earlier. It didn't change what we fixed earlier. What'd you do? And I told him, I just made a small change. We were standing in the sand and he tells me, he said, why did such a small change make such a big difference here and such a small difference here? And I said, made no difference where the shaft speed was low because no force is happening. But where we make force, a small change makes a big force difference. And that's where it needed it. And he jokingly puts his right foot out like he's pushing on a throttle pedal and says, so I can just adjust my shaft speed however I want, you know? And I laughed and said, you can do that, but you might die. So be careful. But as I, as he's saying that, it clicked in my head. Why can't we make an automatically adjusting valve? Right. We drive back to the toter and BLM is there writing us all tickets, which was another fun story. So we have to load up and BLM writes us all tickets and we take off. He says, well, we can either go to Apex or Barstow. So we all decide Barstow's better. So we go spend the night in Barstow. But on the way there, I came up with a way to change the way the bypass valve works. And uh, that was early in December. And by Christmas, I had it built and I gave him one and we put one on a car and it was way better. And after that, King of the Hammers was coming up and we had started to work really hard on this system together. One day I just out of whim and you need to know Wayne, I'm the guy I'm the guy that knows nothing about medicine and I will argue with the doctor that he's wrong. And so that's just the way I am and I probably piss people off that way and I don't mean to, it's just the way I am. So one day I just text him and I said, Rob Look, I know you've tried to do King of Hammers two or three times before now. If you want to finish, I'll get you the finish. And he texts back, funny, Lance just text, texted me that he had an accident. And I didn't know Lance's accident. And he burnt his hands and couldn't ride. Yeah, his motorhome burned up north of Vegas. They were on the highway. I think a battery on a hoverboard or something but burnt, right? I thought it was an RC car. Maybe one of those, yeah. Was it those lithium, NICAD lithium yeah, batteries? Yeah. It exploded and they they like barely got out of the motorhome with their lives practically. It caught up fire so fast. But yeah, he I heard that after and I didn't know that when I texted Rob and it, the timing was kind of crazy, but it makes me think, man, I'm such a jerk for benefiting off Lance's. And I even told Lance at one point, look, if you feel good, you ride. I don't, I don't want to take anything from Griffin. He's like, no, you're better than me anyway or whatever he said. I don't know. He was really gracious about it. So I ended up in Crispy that year and we, we spent some time and I got to teach Rob some driving techniques, which was really cool for me. And Crispy is the poison spider car that Larry McRae had built. It got the name Crispy because it burned at one point, or it's a burnt car. So they started with a burnt. They started with a burnt out car when they built this JK. Greasy was the one that built it, and he built. I mean, it was it was it had a lot of desert racer in it. it the rear shocks were only twelve inches long and two and a halfs, and they would overheat really fast. But boy, it rode good, and we got it riding really good. And we made an adjustment at one point. Panhard rod was too long, and so the it would hit the frame. So Rob and I had to fix that out there one time, but. Larry and the Poison Spider crew was all, they were all in. They wanted, if you needed it, they made it happen. It was, it was really fun to race that. And so does that answer your question? You want me to finish to the end of the race? No, that's good. <laughs> However far you want to go. But I think it's very cool how the impressions you made on Rob end up putting you in the, the right seat with him at KOH. And then that ultimately ended up, you know, graduating into you serving time in his trophy truck with him all over the Western States and then in Mexico. Yeah, so we, we do King of the Hammers, and we I got to tell this story. I'm just going to finish it. So we, we run King of the Hammers, and, and at one point, um, and I, I had to get out for a lot in uh, sledge, and I had to get out in spooners to help Gary Faravani, who was down to two-wheel drive and hung up, and Macy Higgins comes up, and I had to tie a, you know, teach him how to tie a bowline and a winch line that would hold, and we, we winch Gary out of there. And at one point, point, my catheter pulls off, and Rob's catheter had pulled off, too, because we were out of the car or something, and we were kind of joking about that. So we get through, we get finished, have a flat tire at the top of outer limits, and we, we had to change that. 
at, and that just about killed us because we were tired. We've been in the car a long time. When we get through, we're really happy because we finished like 11th, and it was his first finish ever. And the Poison Spider people, Larry and Sherry and the Poison Spider crew, were really happy because we got the car to the finish, and the panels still looked pretty straight. And we felt like it was a success. And we get out, and if you see the picture of Rob and I standing on top of the car with the, with the champagne, there's pee-pee pants in both of us. <laughs> and Rob will hate that I tell that story, but <laughs> we both had blowouts. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there, just the Spooner's Outer Limits, all, all of that. But when you dropped in the catheter falling off, and I've had to explain this to people that they're like, how how do you say, stay in a car for eight hours or 10 hours or 12 hours? I'm like, you wear a catheter. And they're like, the immediate thought is the what, internal the internal catheter that they you shove yeah. a you know, something up your, up your pee pee hole. And, and don't say that again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not the case at all. It's, it's actually, it's like a, it's like a condom with a little elephant snout on the end and you attach a piece of surgical tubing to it and you roll this thing on. It's, it's almost like a super glue. And then you fish the surgical tubing down your leg inside your fire suit and then out your pant leg next to your, uh, your fire, your fireproof shoes. If you're talking to a racer and they do not have a catheter story, you better doubt that they are a racer. Yeah, for sure. I think it might have even been Wayne was one of the first people to tell me, listen, if it's not a matter of when you have a failure, it's you will have a failure. It's not if, it's, it's when. It's not if, it's when. Exactly. Everyone can tell one either. They sat down in their seat, cinched their, their seatbelt on, and somehow ended up getting a pinch in it. And when they finally went down the path of using it, it inflated the surgical tube to balloon size until it burst or it shot off. Or the other one is just... You left it a little bit long out your pant leg. You're walking and one foot steps on top of it while that leg pulls away and you dro almost drop yourself. Oh, what are the other ones? I mean, there's so, there, uh, there's plenty. So I work with Ricky Johnson quite a bit. We do. We do. Co he does coaching while I do tuning and it works out really well together. And some of the most uncomfortable stories I've ever heard of Ricky Johnson, and he's got a million, is him explaining how to put a catheter on right. You're like, Ricky, there's visuals here. I don't want to know. <laughs> And then you have to tell guys that, you know, come into your program and they are pitting and they're new and they're rookies or whatever that, hey, when the car comes into the pit, just because it's leaking something doesn't mean it's bad. Don't shove your hand down in it. Don't take it, touch, touch it, lick it, whatever. Odds are, it, if it's coming from about the center body of the car, it's probably the driver, the co-driver, has they're urinating in the car while it's stopped because people have the problem of yeah. going while the car's in motion. I never had the problem of going while the car's in motion. I was always fine with that. You just keep going and... <laughs> I, I never did either till I turned 50. I, I, I'm only on the smooth roads and the, and the pit. And I'm, I'm that jerk that will ask the new guy. And I'll usually call him by name, the new guy. Hey, will you check the clear fluid coming from my side? <laughs> oh, draw him in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's, that is too much. So well, now everyone's going to hear that and be like, uh, oh, wow. Okay. So now I know that the, the jig is up. Nobody can pit for Wayne anymore. Back to back to the Rob McCachron story. Now that we're off the the Catherine story, we didn't close out. Rob, go ahead, Wayne. Sorry about interrupting you and getting you off on a tangent there. Uh, no worries. So we're uh, after that. You know, after we raced there, we I was kind of helping him out a lot, and we're working on this new bypassing that I've done. And and at, at some point, I I made it adjustable. Uh, figured out a way to make it adjustable while in the cab, and we put it in for the thousand. And the guy that was riding, he's a real good guy, David Maurice. He's just I. 
was like that guy and his wife and him were just champions. She used to feed us. That's, you know, every, everything always for me comes back to food at some point. So that's why I'm fat, I suppose. But they didn't, he didn't touch it. He didn't turn it. He didn't adjust it. He just didn't want to do something wrong and not be able to fix it. And Rob tells me, Wayne, you just got to get in the truck with me. And I told him, can, Rob, but I'm nearly 50 now. I can't really change a tire. I can probably do one in two minutes, but I can't do one faster than that. And he said, my job is to not hit hit rocks. I'll take care of the tires. You got to get in the car and feel what it's feeling so we can fix some some of this stuff. I know it's my my truck is great. Don't get me wrong, but we're never going to get better if you don't get in the car. So I agreed to ride in the Mint and I don't think I slept for a month because I was worried I was going to be the guy. You know, you never want to be that guy that loses a race for a, for a legend. Or I always worry about that anyway when I do stuff for anybody. But, you know, you kind of have to deal with that. So we had a really good run and qualifying and and then we get in the mint and we're we're going and the adjustable shocks are working really good and i'm i'm able to to make him feel like the car's better and and we're going and and we actually ended up uh winning the mint and then i rode with him for you know another five or six races just to to race and i rode, rode with him from then until the time i left fox but when i was with it at fox i had i, I worked a lot of hours and they, they owed me a lot of comp time so i could take the time off to race with him but it takes a lot of time to actually do the race i mean they're down there the guys are down there right now pre, uh, pre-running for, for the thousand and i would be normally anyway but i broke my foot so i'm not riding a truck this year so that's how i got that and then i got out of the car not because we didn't you know get along or anything just because when i went to do all tech full-time and not do fox anymore i just wasn't going to have the time and my you know my time gets valuable when you're working for yourself you work 24 7 anyway so you really don't have time to take off and which brings up this show and us coordinating to get on this and we talked about you know weekends and nights and I'm very flexible. If I have to record it two in the morning, we'll do it. And you're like, man, my, my weekends are super, super valuable. But why? That's that's when we're gonna fit this in as a weekend. So, man, thank you for taking your time to to get on this here and come on and uh, talk to us, Wayne. No problem. It's been a lot of fun. But we're not done. I so, know we got lots. <laughs> so what's the what's the future? What is the future of Ultra Four? What's the future of Koh? What's the future of Alltech? And what's the future of Wayne? I know there's a lot to unpack there, but what's the future for Koh? As far as in your eyes, where's the next? The next next? What is it? I mean, I I think that that the T1 race was a big influx of new blood for KOH because Justin and I, I rode with Justin in a T1 race this year and uh, we were able to finish second. We had a really good chance at first, but credit to Luke, we didn't know he was there. We would have tried to run him down, but we took it easy after we thought we had passed our our competition and we didn't. And that's on our our fault for not knowing knowing who was in front of us, right? But so Luke won fair and square, and I'm not taking anything. He ran a really good race, and and but when Justin and I were out there, you. Know, he got to play around with Cody's stuff a little bit, you know, the, the pretty penny and see what rock crawling was really well. And he's interested. I'm not going to say he's got a rock crawler now, but, you know, and then Cameron Steele, is, he, he's always been interested in Ultra 4, but, you know, Cody and him and I teamed up and I'm going to ride with him in, in KOH. And I just think that... I think that in the last while for off-road, there hasn't been an influx of new talent except for KOH, except for the King of the Hammers thing has, look at the new people. You, I've been pretty well embedded in King of the Hammers. I was a tech inspector for two and a half years. I knew every name. I did, you know, Dave's, I consider Dave one of my best friends, he and, and Chupa, and and, uh, and he just, you know, I could look at the, the rosters now and I'm like... 
Who are these? There's imagine? a lot of people I don't know. And, and, and I think bad on me for not being there just because I've been busy everywhere, but so great on KOH and all these new people racing. It makes me so feel so good about King and Hammers continuing. And I don't know that other genres have taken care of new people. And I think Dave has done his best to take care of people. I just think promoters as a whole need to need to remember that they have a farm league, league and I'm not singling any of them out, but they remember that the farm league is as important as the big league because they're your next big league. So you need to make sure you keep them interested and then you need to be fair. And I'm not singling anyone out, but if there's a call, make a call right. doesn't matter if it's me or it doesn't matter if it's Shannon or it doesn't matter if it's Cameron Steele. It doesn't matter whoever's on the thing. You make the right call as hard as it may be. And if you do that, you have reputation. And I've been asked the question personally, how can you work on this guy's truck today, that guy's truck tomorrow, and then ride with that guy's truck? And I said, all I can do is do my best for the guy that's standing in front of me. And if I have that integrity, it will pay forward and people will recognize that when you, when a Wayne's standing in front of you, he's going to give you his best. And then he'll if he's racing against you, he's going to race hard, but he's going to race fair. And that's all I can do. And I believe that if promoters do the same thing and they, they, they're fair and they don't cater to the guy that has the right energy drink on the side of the car, or, or if they, they don't cater, cater to the guy that has been there the longest, but they make the right call, I think they'll be better in the long run. And I just hope promoters can do that. I'm, I'm really worried about the condition of short course and I'm hoping this new Midwest series can can grow because they look like they're starting off on the right foot and 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 Lucas has a little ways to go but I, I hope they can they can get some learn from some of the things that have happened this year and 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 fix them and because short course is one of the best four hours of racing you can go watch because it's so intense and it's right in your face and it's so much fun to do and it's so much fun to watch where desert racing is so much fun to do not as much fun to watch really fun to watch the snippet you know condensed version on TV or or, or whatever later though. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that's what I would like to see is just people keep just take care of the, the, the new guy as well as you take care of the existing guy. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it's funny that you, you mentioned that Shannon Welch has, you know, I've used her as an advisor, social media advisor for the show. And, you know, I, I had her on and, and we regularly talk about, you know, social media and marketing and how to make my reach and my visibility work better and better. But when it came to, I carried Nate Jesse, uh, you know, rookie out of Maryland, it's, uh, but he's an Indiana guy. And Shannon left Ultra 4 before the last KOH, and that would have been his first race. So I did not share, she's in my pre-listener pool, I did not share the episode with her because I wanted to get her reaction to a brand new rookie that she had no preconceived notion on. And if anything, that guy's story, I think that was episode five, his story is just one of just amazement that the open arms that he received in Ultra 4 from the Ultra 4 family, from the community, from the other racers and where he's at today. And I think that's you know part of what I like to showcase in this show is our community in the off-road, the off-road community, how open arms it is. I mean, it really, it really takes a lot to say, piss somebody off and not be friends with somebody or angry with somebody. We tend to be a community where if you need something in the pits, this driver will loan it to that driver, will loan it to that driver and we'll square it away afterwards. Because if we had any differences, it's, I want to settle those differences on the track in between the green and the checker, not over here because of something petty. I, I agree with that. And, and I mean, we see some incidents happen in Ultra 4, but Ultra 4 is one of those 
I mean, you, you remember the XXRA days and the Pro Rock and the We Rock and the and the U Rock days back where you know everybody was just out there. It was a family. Everybody was around the same campfire. And 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 I think we bring that spirit. And the more money that gets invested and the more new people that come in, maybe maybe it's diluted some. But I think that spirit lives pretty hard in Ultra Four. The things that made me love Ultra Four and not go desert racing, you know, and do Ultra Four instead of desert racing, the things that really did that for me were. A, it was a run what you brung kind of thing. You figure it out. Bring your best mousetrap, whether it's a million-dollar mousetrap or a three-cent mousetrap. Bring it and race it, and let's see what we can do. I loved that part of Ultra 4 early. It reminded me of the early days of desert racing where we were gluing a third Monroe on the back of the car to make it go faster rather than actually rebuilding those expensive shocks that you had to buy out of that company out of Santee or Garden Grove, you know, because none of us could afford that. But it was so fun then to do desert racing where we were making chims out of chim stock we had on the lathe, you know, because we could, we didn't want to buy that stuff and do all that good stuff. And that was, that was the great days of desert racing to me. And then the great days of Ultra 4 was early Ultra 4 where there, there was a guy, I don't remember his name, that he had a Hayabusa in a yellow car and he was, had a, he had a, quite a mouth on the internet, or at least he had fast fingers anyway. And I loved that guy because he was bringing new ideas and he didn't do very well, but man, it was a lot of fun and he brought interest. And that's what I think Ultra 4 had that the rest of us, that the rest of us also had. We just maybe a little bit more mellow about the whole thing. I do remember that Hayabusa car. Was was it a Suzuki? You know, I don't remember. It was tall and it was yellow. That's yeah. all I remember. And and I remember it didn't do very much and it overheated trying to climb back door on the on the LCQ. But that guy and to meet that guy, he had a big mouth on the on the. He wanted to call him Ricky. I don't remember what he called himself, but he wanted to. He had fast fingers on the internet, but in in front of him, he was a down to earth good old boy that just would hand you a beer and come on in and. I didn't drink beer at the time, but he would. I fixed that problem, by the way. He he would. It, they were just great people, and they just he just he just had fast fingers, and he brought interest. And I think the characters of Ultra Four were one of the reasons it 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 grew so much because you know Shannon's a character and Lauren's a character. He's more mellow character, but you know you can pick Lauren out of a crowd from a mile away just when he smiles because he's got that sm- Lauren smile, and he's always exporting it. And no matter where Lauren is, he'll stop and say hi and. You know, just the, the people of, of Ultra 4 have, have always been so great. And desert's not far away from that. It's just when you're desert racing, you're more isolated. You don't see the people as much. No, I think that's a spot on. The comparison is different. And the desert guys that have shown up in Hammertown, the eye-opening the experience that they have has been something else. I think that's, you know, when you had 10, 12 years of that, that meant so much when it came time for Dave to throw his idea out about having T1s on Thursday, it wasn't such a hard buy-in to get them to, you know what, there's something here. This is cool. Hopefully those guys will come come by the fire pit, you know, any night of the week. I was really disappointed to hear like Lauren say, you know, I just don't have time for the fire pit anymore, things like that. But I, I know that's not the case, but verbalized, I really like it when I'm not down there that often, but when I am, it's really cool to see the other the other drivers, the other personalities, the other characters down there and just, you know, passing around the bottle of uh, whatever it is. What are you bringing this year, Wyatt? What are you bringing? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I will de- I'll definitely be there in, uh, in my pre-runner, just hammering around, enjoying it, socializing, having fun, hanging out with you. 
let me give you a bit of insight into that. When when you travel, and I don't want to say that we have a hard life. I have a really blessed life, and I I love my job every day I wake up. But we tra- I travel, you know, two to three, at least three weekends a month, and you travel all the time, and you're gone all the time. And these racers do that too. And I used to always wonder why the hell don't they come to their fire pit and why don't they hang out? But honestly, they got wives and families and lives that get home. And when the racing's done on Thursday. I wish more of them had to stay, but you've put yourself in their shoes. They've just been out here pre-running for a week. They they left uh, Parker. They've been on the road for nearly 10 full days, and their wives and their new baby and their whatever, and, and, and they, they want to get home too. So I, I don't want people to think bad of the desert racers that, that don't come out. And I know you didn't mean that, but I'm just saying that because I thought that a lot. You know, I always wondered why, why, and then I got into this business, and, and I have been so blessed, and I love what I do. But eventually— your wife says, look, I love what you're doing. I'm very happy about you and I'm supportive, but I haven't seen you in three months. When are you going to be home for a Saturday? And then you have to start thinking, oh, you know what? You're right. Maybe I, and I actually had to stop doing as much tuning on weekends because I don't have weekends. Very valid point. Very valid story. Recently, Dale Earnhardt Jr. crashed a plane. You know, his jet crashed uh, yeah. in, in North Carolina leaving, I think, I don't remember where they were going, um, but it was it wasn't that far of a drive. It was maybe it was a four hour drive, but it was a twenty minute plane ride. And he took a lot of heat for why are why are you flying? And Brad Kuzlowski, another NASCAR celebrity, he sure. came out, he came out and Brad said, "Hey, here's here's the reason why we have private jets, and here's the reason we fly because we race fifty weekends out of the year, or what is it, whatever NASCAR is forty two weekends out of the year. Yeah. We are somewhere every single weekend. We are there. We leave the race on Sunday. We fly home that night we're home that night and then we are back out on tuesday or wednesday morning so for us to have a jet means more time with our families and how can you fault that i mean we all have families we're all trying to you know a a ways to a means versus the other way around i i will back that up that you're at some point in your racing career your time becomes more more valuable than your money and that sounds really ridiculous i know can't believe i said it but it is true at some point, your time becomes more valuable than money. Very logical. Uh, maybe that comes with age that you and I both have that view at this point in time. I don't. <laughs> I got I don't more know. gray in my beard than you do. Uh, I just don't have any hair on top of my head, but you have a full head of hair, so I'm a, a lot jealous of that. Well, Wayne, did we cover everything that you wanted to cover? Was this everything you thought it was going to be? It was great. I'd just like to say that you asked me about the future of Alltech, and I, I would like to tell you everything, but I would like to tell you, I, the only thing I can really say right now is there's some big stuff coming. We have some hardware coming out, but patents are slow, and the prototype process is slow, and there's probably been some rumors, and I've probably talked to a few people, but just be patient. I, I broke my foot at the beginning of this year being stupid. There's a thing I want to say. Um, we all work around cars. We all get underneath cars, but don't get lax. We get complacent, and I got complacent, and I had a car fall on me and broke my foot, and I'm lucky I didn't die. I want everybody to just remember, don't get complacent working on that heavy stuff. If it gets up in the air, just stay out from underneath it. And I know we've all done it, and we all do it again, but you just got to be really careful with that stuff. And so this has put me back a few months, but there's big stuff coming from Alltech. We're a shock tuning and service or a company right now. We, we do anything suspension. I don't do any fabrication anymore. Still have a few have some fuel baffles to sell, but I'm not prep pushing that. But uh, there's big suspension stuff coming, so stay tuned. Man, I love it. Wayne, thank you for coming on. Thank you for spending the last couple hours with me. I always love talking to you, Dad. You're great, man. You're just a great dude. If you get into February, you're at Hammertown, you're wandering around, look for the Alltech trailer. 
white trailer and he'll be there. Well, I actually won't. I'm not, I don't, what? uh, I won't be in Hammertown. I'm racing this year with uh, Cody and Cameron. I'm racing enough that I won't actually be in down there. I usually park up by the bridge still. The trailer's retired. I'm now in the jalopy, which is a bread truck, literally a bread truck. It'll be wrapped all tech, so you'll be able to find me. Come by and say hi. There'll be a smudge spot burning to stay warm. They'll be over there, but I won't actually be in town because uh, my work is all going to be done weeks prior. I find that uh, I have found recently that I'd love to be in town if I had product to sell, but shock tuning, if you're not done by the time the first race starts, it's really hard to get any good work done. And I've had some close calls with fans and I'm just not going to put my guys or my racers or myself in that in that position anymore so I'll be done by the time the the UTV start racing I'm glad I'm so wrong about all that where I thought you were normally you normally have that spot there on kind of the south side of Hammertown so no more okay I have for years and I'll have it there eventually when I have product to actually sell and I'll have stuff at the trailer that I can sell springs and provide and do what I need to do and usually have a lathe and a press if somebody's in a pinch so and a mill now. So feel free, but um, I won't be in Hammertown. All right. Well, Wayne, thank you again. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Wyatt. It's been great, and I appreciate everybody out there listening. All right. We are out. You made it. Another episode consumed. If you like the listen, please go give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and consider writing a quick review either there or over on the Facebook page. Thank you for tuning in to this wild dive into the talent tank. Wyatt, out. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the talent tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the talent tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.